it's the next level. Lucky Yates. Hey there, this is Jimmy Simpson. Hello, this is Brad Sherwood. Hi, this is Claire Coffey. This is Andy Daly. Hey there, this is Kevin Durant. Hi, I'm Chris Parnell. Hey, this is DJ Fine. Hey, y'all, this is David Hoffman. You are listening to Level Have Fun. All right, guys, Ben Beck here, back with another edition of The Spotlight, and this is one I've been looking forward to for a long time. This has been about five to ten years in the making, yeah. easily. Yes, it has. Uh, this is... Uh, uh, he's an award-winning comedian, ventriloquist. You won Star Search back in 91. You've been doing this for a, a hell of a long time. You've performed, talk about notes from your publicist, you've performed <laughs> at like some of the top comedy clubs in the country. I've seen you at a bunch of comedy clubs. Uh, welcome to the Spotlight, Taylor Mason. Ben, I'm, I'm just so pleased to be on with you. I feel like we're old friends. Yeah, so, uh, I, and that's one of the reasons I'm looking forward to this is because this is basically just going to be two old friends <laughs> sitting together having a conversation that we should have had oh, well. <laughs> a long time ago. The, the moment has arrived. Yeah, I mean, you know, we talk about going, you know, old friends. 98 was when wow. at least I saw you perform at my college, at Moravian College. Right, and in Pennsylvania. In Pennsylvania, and I don't know how it happened, but over, you know, we're talking 20, 21 years, it developed somehow into somebody who was sitting in the audience watching you into a friendship. Well, you know, and I think social media has a lot to do with the fact that we were able to connect. Yeah. Because without social media, I don't know, and I think that's true for a lot of people in, in a lot of businesses because it's all about networking and the fact that social media allowed us. It's one of the great things. People complain about social media, and we, I make fun of social media a lot, <laughs> but... There are really good things, yeah. And you and I are a good example of how uh, a friendship really can become a very good friendship over time through social media. Yeah, I don't even, and I don't even really remember how the friendship initiated. I know, uh, you're, you know, back in '98, this is before MySpace. Right. Facebook right. wasn't even. I think Facebook was exclusive to just colleges at the, the cell time. Cell phones were like the big, you know, really big things, I think. Yeah, right? I don't even yeah, think I had one at yeah, that time. Yeah, of course. You know, they were all still analog phones. Right. Like nothing was digital yet. And so I don't know if it was I went to your website and sent you an email. Like, I even really don't remember that it happened, oh, how hilarious. it happened. But I'm glad it's happened. Right. You know, because we've kept in contact over the years I've seen you in, in shows and, and I always look forward to seeing you out there and, and I love I love going yeah. to see you and it's it's just it never gets old oh it's so, great but enough gushing about, uh, <laughs> about the friendship yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you know you, you just wrote a new book Irreversible which I'm in the process of reading freely admit I haven't finished it yet and I admitted that to you but yeah you know but like I said to you a lot of times I do these and the people haven't even read they don't even know <laughs> Yeah. what the book is about, and they're just reading the, the thing from the campaign, right, the PR campaign, oh, ask him, well, and so this is much better because we're friends. Yeah. So even if you haven't read the whole thing, you kind of, my voice plus you know me. So that gives us a lot more, it gives you a lot more insight into how I work yeah. and, you know, the way that I've, I've come to be whatever it is that I am now. And that's one of the, re another reason why I'm really looking forward to this is because, you know, we, we've never had this in-depth of a discussion before about your career and, and things like that. And, you know, I've seen you so many times at shows and I'm looking forward to the next time I get to see you after this conversation because I might have a bigger idea. Oh, on your base of reference is going to... Yeah, exactly. Uh, so let's let's go back to the beginning a little bit. I mentioned you know you started back in what 1983. Yeah, I was so uh, I'm 63 years old. So I started I perf started performing well actually when I was in college. So I I was in college in the late 70s. Mm -hmm. So and I was I played college football. I hurt my knee badly, and I was at a fraternity party, and uh, somebody gave me a microphone, and I just started riffing. No, not doing ventriloquism or anything. I, did, I was just depressed because I was in, this, I was in an ankle to hip cast. Mm -hmm. so this is in the Stone Age when they did, they opened up your knee and they scraped the cartilage and they retied the ligament and they pounded it back in. So I'm in this cast and people are dancing and having a great time. I'm depressed over by the turntable. <laughs> and the way it worked was, this is so long ago, you would take Casey and the Sunshine out, Casey and the <laughs> Sunshine band, 
put the disc on the turntable, put the needle on the track, <laughs> and the song would play, and the song would end, take the needle off the track, take the disc off. So yeah. somebody gave me, you know, kill time while I change the records. So I did, and that is how I started. And within a week, I mean, there was a guy at that party that came over to me and said, and this is the moment of my life. I'll give you $50 if you come and do this at my party next week. That's amazing. And that is, and the, you know, $50, you know, to especially to back, when you're in college, $50. It's everything. Yeah, it, it doesn't matter what time of the year, you know, what oh, decade it is. It could be last year. $50. It's a lot of money for anybody in college. So then I was making, then I started, then I started a little business. Mm -hmm. And it was crazy. Uh, there was, now this is when, uh, scratching just started. Mm -hmm. So Run DMC had just hit, okay? So this is a long time ago. Uh -huh. But there was a DJ record company in Chicago called Dogs of War. All African American, very urban. And I would go in there and give the guy, I would, I would now making $250 a gig to go in and play records mm -hmm. and do comedy and I had to kill time I had I had to have material because they're paying me 250 so I've got to give them a show yeah so I'd been a closet ventriloquist so I brought the ventriloquist puppet back with me from home and the ventriloquist puppet was an old-school slot jaw plastic-headed Danny O'Day look-alike which is a puppet that worked with a ventriloquist named uh, a Paul Winchell or Jimmy Nelson I can't remember anyway and it was very it was cheaply made, and my dad and I rebuilt it mm -hmm. uh, so that it had a slot jaw mouth, and I was able, he put a control stick on the head with a lathe, made the control stick and made a base for the puppet, and made shoulders, like a brick and mortar, like pestle and mortar, I mean, where I could move the head around, and put a string in the back of the neck, and, and uh, my grandmother had taught me a little bit of sewing, and I sewed a costume on the front of the body, <laughs> and I would go and do these fraternity and sorority and dormitory parties for $250. But, and I would have the, the records, the latest hip stuff, all dance at the time, but it was just starting with uh, what's now called rap music. It was just beginning. So I had a two turntable setup. If you know the song, two uh -huh. turntables and a microphone uh -huh. back. I mean, yep. back, we're going to old school. So that's what it was. <laughs> and, and, but I wasn't into scratching. That was not what I was doing. I was playing the record, segueing to another record, segueing to another record, and then killing it and doing 15 minutes of comedy with the puppet. And then back to the records, <laughs> and then a, a dance party, and I would give a dance, uh, like a, a competition, and I would give away a, a drink, some kind of a big bottle of wine or something, mm -hmm. to, to the winners, all part of the $250 package of having Taylor Mason <laughs> come in and do your, do your show. And that is how, and I'm working, so that's what I was doing for two years in college. And then I would play, I would take every gig that I could get. So Rotary Club would have, JC's would have a banquet or whatever. And I did a show at the auditorium at the University of Illinois for, I was the opening act for this touring comedy theater called The Second City. Oh, I know Second Chicago. City, yeah. And I was their opening act. And I'm sure half the audience didn't even know who I was. Mm -hmm. The University of Illinois, 30,000 kids just, you know, a thousand people in an auditorium watching that had come to see. And I do my act, 15 minute opening set, and I don't even remember the girl's name, but one of the actresses said, from Second City, you should audition at the Second City. So I ended up doing that. It took me a couple of years to get my- I had no idea you did Second City. That's a, that's a big achievement for any comedian. You met my wife. Mm -hmm. my, I met my wife at the Second City Theater in Chicago. Oh, that's awesome. She's an actress. Actually, when I met her, she had a career. She was seriously. She was equity. She was. She was in the union. Uh -huh. She had done a show, and she a professional actress. And then I was in a, a comedy acting workshop at the Second City Theater before I got hired. Mm -hmm. And uh, she and I were in that same class. That's how I met her. And then she later, when I was working for the Second City Theater, uh, she was working in the office. Mm -hmm. And then we we got together. And we, that was 1983. I was just out of college. That summer after college, I moved in with her to her apartment. And we both worked at the Second City Theater for 
83, 84, 85. So okay. We were there for three years. Okay. So you've been with your wife pretty much the entire, almost the entire span of your career. Pretty yes. much. Yes. I would say for the, for certainly from the time that I was, uh, after college that I was being paid as a professional, mm -hmm. Marcia has, Mar my wife Marcia has been with me. Okay. So she, so I always say that for some people in show business, musicians, actors, directors, producers, uh, comedians, your spouse is with you, but you know, and you're an accountant, and then you get the bug to be whatever. Yeah. Like you, you know, you want to take your guitar playing to another level, and you you join a band, and then you go to your spouse and say, "Listen, <laughs> I'm going to quit my job," and if there's none of that for us, she has no excuses because she knew from day one <laughs> what exactly what I, you exactly. were going to be, and yeah. she was in the business. Yeah. So she, you know, so and but no, she's very supportive, and we've been together, you know, for 36 years. Yeah. And which, we've been married for 33. Which, I mean, in, in the entertainment business is an achievement in itself. It is rare. Yeah. It is rare. So, you, you know, you mentioned, you know, being a closet ventriloquist before you even got into the comedy aspect. So you were, you know, you were ventriloquist from, from a very young age. Yes. Uh, Sherry Lewis is by far my biggest... Lamb chop. Lamb chop. And, and my, my dad was a farm news broadcaster mm -hmm. back when radio had farm news. So he was a farm news broadcaster with a show every single day, Monday through Friday. He had a morning television show in Chicago where he was on for 30 minutes doing farm news. And then every day from noon to 1.30, he was on the radio. He had a partner named Orion Samuelson and my father, Bill Mason, and Orion Samuelson did these shows about farm news because at, when I was growing up in the 70s, there was no internet. Mm -hmm. So farmers in the Midwest, Wisconsin, Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, and parts of Missouri would hear my father on WGN, radio and TV, and they would get their farm news, pork belly futures, <laughs> whatever the, the, the newest, latest hybrids were, whatever the farm news. Mm -hmm. Right now, uh, President Trump is going through this big thing with China about what, what's happening with agriculture. And it's hurting the American farmer, especially the the middle-class American farm, if there is such a thing anymore. And in, in prior years, before the internet, nobody would know what was going on. It would take the farmers days to find out this mm -hmm. kind of, now it's with, and so. Everything's in a second, you know. Yeah. And in those days, my father was the liaison between what was happening with the Secretary of Agriculture, Earl Butts, and the agricultural community in the Midwest mm -hmm. in, the, in the Corn Belt. So my family farms, and my family still have my uncle and my cousins still farm out in central Illinois. At the same time, here's this woman on television, Sherry Lewis, with Lamb Chop and Charlie Horse, mm -hmm. sock puppets, doing, I mean, it doesn't take a genius. And the story I always tell is my mom would do the laundry, roll the socks up in a ball, and there would be the opening of one of the socks at the top of the ball. And she would form that opening into a smile. Uh -huh. So when you would open your sock drawer in the morning, <laughs> there were 15 smiling little fuzzballs. And she had all these sayings, my mother. Uh, uh, let your food stop your mouth. If you're hungry, you'll eat. A stitch in time saves nine. And you should start every day with a smile. And you would open your sock drawer. And it took me a couple of years. I mean, I was probably nine. After nine years of opening sock drawer and seeing the smiling. Why are the socks smiling? Uh -huh. And finally, oh, start every day with a smile. Yeah. Plus, Sherry Lewis is on TV with farm animals on her hand talking to the farm animal, which is a sock. Here's a smiling sock. My dad's in farm news. My family farms. <laughs> Sherry Lewis has got a there farm There's so animal. many clues sitting oh, staring, right, staring right in the exactly. face. Exactly. <laughs> Figure it out, you moron. So I put the sock on my hand and talked, you know, made the, 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 the first thing, the first sound was O, oh, because when the sock opens its mouth, it's an O. Oh, so, mm. oh, without moving my lips. Stand in front of the mirror, oh, and then E, stretch it so the sound is an E sound, so O and E, okay, so O, E, O, E, and just practicing <laughs> over and over, which I'm sure looked weird, uh -huh. so I would do it alone, uh, and that is that is the impetus for where I am now, 54 years later. Yeah, and a 54-year career for, uh, for anybody is, is an amazing career, but I know you talk about in the book, you know, ventriloquism being, 
maybe like a niche market, but then you go into, you know, you talk about other ventriloquists like Jeff Dunham and Terry Fader, who, you know, Jeff Dunham, who has an amazing career as a ventriloquist, Jeff Dunham, who won America's Got Talent. Terry, Terry Fader won America's Got Talent. Uh, also, oh, did I say Jeff Dunham won America's yeah. Got Talent? Sorry, but, I meant yeah, Terry Fader. He would yeah. be insulted, but <laughs> we're okay with all that. You no, know, Terry Fader won America's Got Talent, and Jeff has had just a stellar career. Started basically his career started with Johnny Carson, who was a ventriloquist. Johnny Carson, when he was living in Nebraska, mm -hmm. starting, he was a ventriloquist, so he had a vicarious relationship with ventriloquists. Even though in the 1980s and early 90s, ventriloquist was still a four-letter word in show business. Mm -hmm. But I think that Carson's love of ventriloquism and the fact that he had started as a ventriloquist led to Jeff actually getting on The Tonight Show and being, and being treated professionally instead of, you know, oh, no, not the puppet on the knee. Yeah. No, please, don't do that. And Jeff's very creative, and everything's very entertaining and interesting and funny. And Terry Fader, very musical, mm -hmm. One America's Got Talent. And then they had the guy from Paul Severino, I think, or I can't remember his name, guy from England, One America's Got yes. Talent. Yep. Darcy Lynn Farmer, the little girl, One America's Got Talent. Mm -hmm. So ventriloquism has now become, as I say in the book, it's a much more It's a bigger accepted. market, yeah. Magic, I think also, the magicians used to be kids shows only, Nobody wants to, I don't want to see the, the nine of spades disappear and reappear in your ear. Please yeah. stop. Now, whoa, you made the nine of spades disappear and reappear in my ear. Ah! It's funny because I actually, I, I do watch America's Got Talent. I watch it every season. I, I'm not much for the big, you know, competition reality shows and anything. I watch Survivor because I've auditioned for Survivor. I almost made it. Oh, uh, really? I, I, fi I finished in the top 100 about oh my gosh, top 100 ben, candidates. I would have loved to see you on Survivor. So many, and I actually had the person from the network actually told me audition again, because this was my second time auditioning. The first time I auditioned, I got a call back. The second time I auditioned, I made it to the top 100 candidates. So I was like one step oh, away from cusp, making it man. onto the show. And the guy from the network, he's like, audition again. He's like, CBS told me, they're like, audition again. So I will, I gotta get in better shape, but I, I plan on auditioning oh, again. Oh my gosh, man, I would love to see you on that. But in you know the process of doing the podcast and you know meeting people over the course of the past couple of years, I've actually, it's actually been fun for me to see people I know turn up on America's Got Talent. Oh, sure. Uh, you know, John Dornboss, who was a Philadelphia yeah. Eagle, I had met a couple times before, and he's a magician, so right. I always root for the magicians, I always root for the ventriloquists, because I know you. And I remember even seeing you pop up on Last Comic Standing. Oh, yeah. A couple, I mean, we're probably going back, what, maybe about 10 years at this point. Yeah, maybe about, maybe about that, yeah. Uh, but not knowing you were gonna be on it, but just getting that huge high of seeing you on it ah. and rooting for you. And, you know, unfortunately you didn't make it on, but there's still a part of me that hopes every once in a while, maybe I'll see you pop up on talent. Ah. Um, well, you know, you know, you never know. Yeah. Um, those shows, I have, I have been on the show and I just haven't, similar to Last Comic Standing, where I did my show, they tape it, and then for whatever reason they decide you're not going Oh, so on. you have auditioned for talent before? Oh yeah, I've been on, I've actually been on, the, the last time I was on, uh, Howie Mandel, Pierce Morgan, oh, um, Howard, not Howard, I don't think no, Howard Stern was there yet. No, Osborne was one of the, okay, Sharon Osborne, three. okay. That was the three. And then they, they moved you to Las Vegas, and for whatever reason, you know, it's a big show. Yeah. And I always say, people, you hear so many, I don't really, I get it. I understand what 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 is America's Got Talent trying to do? They're selling McDonald's, Coke, you know, Gatorade. Whatever logos on that cup on their desk. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> and you know, is Taylor Mason's act going to sell? I get it. And so even though, and so I had I've had very good experiences with America's Got Talent and with Last Comic Standing. I just did wasn't chosen to move on mm -hmm. for whatever reason, and I get it. You know, and I'm not. And believe me, if I have an opportunity to do America's Got Talent again. I'm doing it. Yeah, good. So I've, <laughs> good. I probably auditioned for the show five or six times. Okay. And I've been on the show twice, and then just didn't make it past the the first round. Okay. I, they pass you, but then you never get the phone call or the airplane ticket to go to Las Vegas. Yes. Yeah. yeah exactly. So and I get it. You know, there there there's so many things that go into a, a popular. I mean, it's a very popular television program, mm -hmm. and as you pointed out, it's a competition. Yeah. So. It's not just you trying to impress one person. There's a lot of things going uh, on. You, you're trying to impress the country, basically, because they're the ones that are going to be voting for you in the end. And buying Clorox so, or yeah, McDonald's. Yes, ex exactly. And I get it. 
So, so. And, and to me, show business is just this vast, you know, opportunities come along and you take whatever you can get. Yeah. So. Well, if the day, if and when the day ever comes that you're back on talent, everybody's going to vote for Taylor. So that's the way it's going to happen. <laughs> we'll so. make it work. I, and it's, it's weird because I've actually, for the past two years, I've picked the winner oh my from, God. The, from the audition. I picked Shin Lim winning. Did you really? Uh, uh, two what a years great ago. magician, by the way. Fant I, I watch Penn and Teller's Fool Us too. That's another show I'm a oh, big fan of. Oh, that's a great show. Um, and I've, I've, I feel like I've picked this year's winner, but I won't know yet because they're still in the the judge cuts. He's oh, made okay. it past the judge cuts. He's going to the live shows. So, but we'll see. Ah, oh, that's interesting. But we talked about you know Terry Fader and and Jeff Dunham and Darcy Lynn. Have you had an opportunity to meet any of these other? I've met. Quests? I've met Jeff. Okay. So uh, I do know Jeff who I have a lot of respect for and is just an amazing performer. I have not met Terry Fader. I haven't met Darcy Lynn, and I did, haven't met Paul either, um, the three winners of America's Got Talent. Mm -hmm. uh, that's not because I don't want to. I'd love to, but it's just, you yeah, know, they're busy. Just, yeah. I'm busy, uh, schedules, and nobody ever books two ventriloquists on the same show. <laughs> yeah. Right? Nobody book, books, except unless you go to the Magic Castle, in Hermosa Beach, California, you're not going to see two magicians on the same show either. Have you ever been to Magic Castle? I have, and it's awesome. I would love to go to Magic Castle one Oh, day. it's just great. Yeah. Because uh, again, like, I'm a big fan of ventriloquists and magicians, so like, I would love to go. Sometimes they have ventriloquists yeah. work there, and now magicians have got, like, you'll see, uh, there's been Broadway shows, The Great Illusionists, of just four yeah. magicians, and that's two, and they've toured, and Magic has also made a huge very similar to ventriloquism, has made a comeback. Mm -hmm. I have a bunch of reasons, that I'm, I, I personally think that why that is, but magic and ventriloquism are, in, in fact, the book before I wrote Irreversible, the book we're talking about, uh, I, I wrote a book called The Complete Idiot's Guide to Ventriloquism, <laughs> uh -huh. yep. and in that book I said this, so that came out in 2011, so that's eight years old. Oh. Anyway, <laughs> in that book I say this is the golden age of ventriloquism, because when I was researching it, mm -hmm. I found out all this news about these ventriloquists I'd never heard of, all these stories, and I find out how many hundreds of ventriloquists are working full-time. They're all over the place. Yeah. Every cruise line has one. Uh, every comedy club has a favorite. Vegas, Atlantic City, kids shows. It's unbelievable how many ventriloquists. And I went to a ventriloquist convention. I just did one, and I went, went to one a couple of years ago. That's got to be fun. It is a blast, and they're the most supportive happy just and there's so much information about ventriloquism and the art it's a very interesting mm -hmm. couple of days at the ventriloquist convention yeah, that's got to be a lot of fun it is uh this might be a weird question and you don't have to answer it you know you can avoid you can Anything. not answer when it comes to you know seeing the success of you know Jeff Dunham and Terry Fader, is there ever a little bit of animosity or jealousy when it comes to that? Not for me. That? I know that some guys there is, mm -hmm. uh, and some women there is, but for me, no. First of all, I, my act is very different from anybody else's because it's my act, my live act is not just ventriloquism. No, so, you have music and right. And there's comedy. a lot of yeah, stuff that's going yeah. on. So that's one reason. Another is how can you begrudge anybody's success? Yeah. You know, especially people, these people have been working very hard for long periods of time. And Darcy Lynn is, is, that didn't happen for her. She's very young. Mm -hmm. But everybody else has been working very long periods of time, putting a lot of heartbreaking dues in lots of very difficult situations. Mm -hmm. And so I have nothing but admiration and respect. And I think it's inspiring. So, no. Something to strive for. And, exactly. You know, and, yeah. and, I think to uh, have peers that are doing really well, it's a, it's a really great thing. I think when there are people at the top of the showbiz heap, Terry Fader's the most successful show in Las Vegas, and Jeff Dunham a couple of years ago, less than five years ago, was the most popular comedy act, yeah. drawing-wise, than anybody. So that just helps everybody. So ventriloquists as a whole should not be jealous or find be intimidated by that at all. That's just the rising tide lifts all boats, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, and and they've helped make ventriloquism more and more popular. Yeah, you mentioned you know when you were talking about a lot of the different things that you do, you mentioned the cruise line, and I know you work a lot of Disney cruises. I do a ton of Disney if, cruises. If you ever take a Disney cruise, there's a good possibility you, you could run into Taylor there yes. too. How did you get into a gig like that? Because I know you've told me stories before about there have been times where they've literally taken you by chopper right. out to the boat because right. they needed somebody to perform. Somebody. It, it, Hurricanes mess up their schedules. Mm -hmm. Somebody can't get on the ship. 
Yeah, I've flown into like a little island in the Bahamas and then gotten on a boat and gone out to their private island, you know, back by the backwaters yeah. uh, to get out there. They're a great company to work for. I got started with them years ago, and this is what there's a there's a talent agency here in New Jersey where I live, the Abramson Agency, run by two wonderful people, Dan and Jerry Abramson, and they, I'll say, twenty years ago, when before the Disney ships had become Disney ships, really, said to me, "We would like to get you on a Disney cruise," mm -hmm. and I said that would be great, and it didn't work out. It didn't work out, but the Disney people knew who I was. And I had signed with a, the manager that I'm with now, probably 14 or 15 years ago, a guy named Tim Grable. And he, I told him, you, you should call Disney and get me booked. Because these two people, the Abramsons, have already given me, given, I'm already in. Mm -hmm. So he ended up booking me. The gist of that story is this. <clears throat> a, a normal person, a nice person, would have said to the Abramsons, I'm going to owe you a commission on this because I've been booked by Disney. Mm -hmm. But I didn't do that. I just <laughs> took the money and ran, left them in the lurch, and my agent, who I still work today, Tim, got all the commissions. So, the this will, I'm going to tie this together. Okay. At the Ventriloquist Convention this year, summer of 2019, I was the, the headlining act on the big Saturday night gala show that they do at the Ventriloquist Convention. And sitting right in front of me in the audience are Jerry and Dan Abramson. <laughs> so in the middle of my act, and this is the truth, and I don't have to, I'm not <laughs> embellishing this at all, I apologized in public for having taken advantage of their good graces mm -hmm. and giving me this in with the, and I apologized to them in, because in, I didn't want this to be any, I, it's been hanging over my head. Yeah. You were mean to these people. You did a bad thing. So I apologized, and I still very, Dan and Jerry, I'm very sorry. Um, <laughs> I apologized to them publicly. I'll never be able to repay them for what they did for, what they did for me mm -hmm. and what I did to, to them. But I feel at least now I cleared my conscience, yeah. if not the, the checkbook. Did they accept your apology? Yes. Okay. And they're, oh, they're lovely. Okay. They're as gracious. They bought my book. Oh, really? Okay. They brought my book, and Dan said, where are we mentioned in the book? Because I tell the story in the book. And I couldn't remember. It's in the Disney Cruise section of uh -huh. the book. But uh, I, didn't, I couldn't find it quick enough for him. I couldn't find it. Like, I didn't have the page. Yeah. But it's in there. Yeah. So now my conscience is clear, if nothing else. Well, that's good. I mean, because sometimes you need that. Because I know I've had those moments in my life, too, I've done, where I've just, yeah. I've regretted things that I've done. Maybe nothing major or anything like that. But even the smallest little regret can just, oh, just can itch at you. Yeah. And just... Exactly. So I, I've had those moments too. Uh, you know, let's talk a little bit about the book because uh, I know we're covering things that are in the book, which is right. which is fine. We want to give people a, a reason to want to read is my, more. My book, the, basically, my book is a life story. Mm -hmm. uh, it was when I the first draft was two hundred and twenty thousand words, and the publisher freaked out and said, "This is five hundred pages." <laughs> Nobody is going to read. This is like Game of Thrones. Exactly. <laughs> edition after, you know, five uh -huh. editions. So uh, she, I got it down to 300 pages. Mm -hmm. So, and that was, it was pulling teeth because you want to keep all these stories. Yeah. But I yanked stories out and uh, the, it, it's been a goal of mine to, to do a memoir. And my wife kind of helped title it. On the back page, it says, Taylor Mason, The Life and Times of a Traveling Ventriloquist. That was her. That was her idea, mm -hmm. and uh, the the title "Irreversible." I'm not going to give it away. It's it's you don't find out why I wrote a book called "Irreversible" until the last page, um, which I'm not there yet. Yes. So we'll we'll get but that's to it. You'll, you'll get yeah. to it. Um, and I basically I condensed my 40 years of show business, ventriloquism, comedy, and music into 300 pages. Mm -hmm. And, it, it, and I've got, you know, there's a ton of stories in there, that, some of what we're talking about right mm -hmm. now. So there's nothing that we're talking about that's not in the book. Because yeah. it's basically all covered in the book. Well, that's what I figured. I mean, I, I knew there was going to be things we were going to cover that were in the book. Right. Because if I just read the entire book and then came here and tried to do a, a conversation with you about stuff that wasn't in the book, we'd be done by now. I mean, right. You know, <laughs> so, but this gives people the edge to go out and, and purchase the book, which I know it, you can buy it on Amazon. 
the uh, the the ebook is out there too. Three bucks for the ebook, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about the, the possibility of an auto audio book once yes. we're done with this because I I might help you with that. Oh, that'd be great. Uh, but yeah, I, I found it very intriguing when you when you wrote the book, and I didn't buy the book because of this interview. I bought the book when you first put it out, right? Because one, you know, even if I wasn't going to read the book, I still wanted to support you, and uh. you know, and buy the book because that's what I do for people that I know. But I was still. It's, again, this is an interview that's been, we've been trying to make happen for years. So I wanted to read the book just to get a more of an insight into, you know, why you do what you do. Because again, I've seen, I've lost count to the number of times I've seen you perform. I've seen you perform in PA, I've seen you perform at colleges, I've seen you perform here in Jersey. I I've lost count. There's always something new. There's always, <laughs> the even the, the stuff that's been in the act for, the longest time still hits, which I'm sure is why it's still in the act. <laughs> you know, so, you know, when we talk about your performances and things like that, you've performed at so many different comedy clubs. What would you say, and, and you know, and I'm sure this is probably in the book too, what would you say is probably the, the biggest crowd you've ever performed oh in gosh. front of? Oh my gosh, I did a three-year tour with a gospel, southern gospel, tour and we played when we played philadelphia we played the wells fargo center really so sold out twenty five thousand seats and the way they did it for me was i was the let's call it the comedy break mm -hmm. the comedy interlude among all the gospel songs so in order for me to reach an audience of twenty five thousand people in an arena they have the diamond vision screens yeah. above and and it was Oh, everything was first class, the latest tech, latest cameras. They had the Sony, I think, I can't remember the name of the camera, on a jib mm -hmm. and picking everything up so that even though the people are way, you know, miles away, similar to when you see a hockey game or a basketball game at, at these big arenas, mm -hmm. your face is right there on the TV screen. Yeah. So it's very immediate. And I toured with them for almost three years and coast to coast. So those are the biggest crowds. You, you know, you play Atlanta, 25,000 people. The problem with that tour for me was I'm not from that country music, southern gospel music background where you get on the bus and you, you, on Thursday night you're in Detroit. Go to bed, you wake <laughs> up on Friday, and now you're in Chicago. Go to bed, and you do the show, go to bed, wake up, and now you're in Minneapolis. Uh -huh. You know, and then you hit your head every morning and the, oh, you know, I'm used to, the comedy life, which is fly in, you know, stay at a condo or a hotel, and go to the club and do your show. Yeah. So I did that for as long as I could do it, and they were wonderful folks to work for. The guy that runs the whole thing is a the ASCAP songwriter of the of the century for the past century, Bill Gaither, who a lot of people don't know, but I can't believe they don't. Really I know that name. Do I you? know I know that name. Yeah, a lot of folks know who he is, at least vicariously. But yeah. he's written hymns that are in hymnals. And uh, he and his wife, best boss I ever had. I just, the tour was just, it was just mind boggling to be on these buses and go all over the place. So that, those are the biggest crowds I've ever worked for though. I, I have to imagine, cause you know, I, I've moderated panels at conventions and the, I think the biggest crowd I've ever been in front of was maybe 1500 people. So a crowd of 25,000 people, I have to imagine that, you know, at least similar to me, like, you know, a crowd of 1500 people, and you know when it comes to performing in front of the clubs, the lighting is at such that you don't really see the right. crowd that much. And you know when I performed, you know when I moderated for like fifteen hundred people, I see literally maybe the first couple rows. Right. And after that, it's just a blur. But I have to imagine, you know, a crowd of twenty five thousand people, even though you're probably not seeing most of them, to gauge maybe an applause that you get afterwards, that's got to be a high. A little bit. It is, you know, but it's, you're you're really concentrated. You're in the moment, mm -hmm. and you're you're really riding the crest of that the waves of laughter and applause, mm -hmm. and you really have to, you really have to uh, not so much think. You have to get out of your head, to a large extent, and kind of have confidence in what you're doing, and let the material or the work that you're doing be accepted and re received by the audience and then appreciated and then move on. So a lot of times, so if you're going to do a 20 minute set in a 25,000 seat arena, you 
it's not like doing your 20-minute set in a comedy club where the laughs are right here and the applause is boom. Because now you have, it's a wash. Mm -hmm. So you're waiting for it. The, that to kind of to kind of. So you're really only doing bit, about yeah. 10 minutes of material. Yeah. But it takes 20 minutes to do it. Yeah. Because there are 25,000 people mm -hmm. that are responding to your whatever it is that you're doing. Yeah. So, yeah. it And I think it's very gratifying because to see if, if the stuff that you that you can do personally or write up in a comedy club of 150 people where you can just kill. If that, now is that going to translate and work for this huge mass of people? Mm -hmm. And yeah, it did and it, it, there is a high there. And I did, they also did, I did Carnegie Hall with them. I did the Sydney Opera House. Um, That's it, like a dream place for me to go. You know, it's it, it, Australia and Sydney. Oh, it's, it's just an incredible arena mm -hmm. and uh, but I toured with them for a couple of years, and I was very comfortable with doing these kind of special specialty gigs. So yeah, and there, if, if, to answer your question, yes, there's a real, there is a real. But I think comedy is a high anyway. Yeah, it's very, and that's why you've, there's so much. You know, comedians a lot of times are very neurotic, and very. Uh, there's you, you've heard all the stories, and you can see why mm -hmm. because the immediate response that you're getting from people. And if you're doing an hour and a half in a comedy club, and for 90 minutes you're just rocking it, that high is uh, it's addictive. <laughs> yeah. And you, it's hard to just shut that down when you walk off stage and drive back to your house in Morristown. <laughs> I know, you know, I, I've seen you, and like as I mentioned, I've seen you a number of times at comedy clubs and, and such. One of the things that always, and I don't know why it still worries me, but I, I, you'd think I'd be over it by now. I've, I've seen you a number of times where, you know, you, you have openers, usually two or three openers before you go on, before right. you headline. And there, I've seen guys that go out there and struggle, you know, and they're not winning the crowd over. The crowd is kind of like they're not with them. And I mean, I feel for those guys because, I, you know, I've. I've, I've attempted stand-up before. I've done like five or six minutes, and that was like the craziest five or six minutes of my life. So I, I really feel for them. But the thing that always worries me is, okay, how is this audience going to be for Taylor? Like, how are they going to be for you? And without fail, every time I see you and I have that worry, within the first five minutes, you've got the audience, like in the palm of your hand. Been doing like, this you, long time. You've won them over. So I don't know why it's still a fear of mine, but it's still <laughs> there in the back of my head. Oh, How, thanks, Ben. You're looking out for me. Yes. I do, and and but so you know when it comes to the audience and things like that, how do you deal with? Because I'm sure you've had your share over the course of your career. How do you deal with hecklers and and things like that? I'm hard to heckle. It's hard to heckle me, you yeah. know, because it's pretty fast moving. There's yeah. a lot going on, and it's and but there are people who've tried, and I try to handle every single one instead of having uh, the stock lines. I'm trying to think of a comedy club style. A guy heckles you and, hey, I don't, uh, I don't take the, the grocery cart out of your hands when you're trying to work. Leave yeah. me alone. I try to stay away from those. Mm -hmm. And I try to go personally just in the moment mm -hmm. for whatever. So it's different every time. And it, it kind of keeps you focused and concentrated in the moment and being present. Why is this guy heckling me? Because there's so many things about... We, or it might be they just want attention. It might be that they wanted a different kind of act or they thought somebody else was different going to be there. Maybe they're trying to show off for their friends. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're just drunk. Mm -hmm. Whatever. So I try to handle... Every heckler is different. And I try to handle each one differently. And, and I think I'm pretty good at it. I think it's, it doesn't happen to me very often because, like I said, it's hard to heckle my yeah. act. Once you started and you have the audience won over 99% and there's one guy or woman trying to shout over, you suck, as you're killing, after a while they realize... It gets lost. And they just give up. Yeah. And I would say that happens most of the time. But there are times when they're just persistent, you know, yeah. and, and you'll have to deal with them. And I try to deal with them individually. The, one, the, the easiest ones are the ones who just say, you suck, and everything is, do you have anything else, else you can add? <laughs> is there anything else in your mind? Did you come in? You know, and there's so many ways that you can um, put them down. I always tell, when I, a lot of clubs, they have a guy who will go and... and oh, you have to be quiet now. Yeah, like tap him on the shoulder. Right. And, yeah. I always tell them, don't. The best way for, the best thing to deal with, for everybody, audience and everybody is, don't disrupt the show. Mm -hmm. And if the guy is just really obnoxious, I will deal with it. 
And if I can't deal with it, I will point at you and say, please help me. And yeah. I've never had to do that. Well, that's good. Yeah. So, so there's never ever really been a heckler that's kind of thrown you to the point where I'm it's, to think it's really just thrown made, you off. made things miserable for me. I'm trying to think if there's a... Um, maybe early in my career, mm-hmm. you know, um, when I was struggling just to put together an act and it was hit and miss and I didn't really have a set routine yet. Mm-hmm. I had some things that worked. Or sometimes when you're starting, you have 15 really good minutes, but they want 30. But you need the 300 bucks for the weekend. Yeah. So you tell them, oh, I can do 30, but you really only got 15. But you think to yourself, well, I can stretch it, by I'll, I'll talk to the audience for five, and I'll do some improvisation, and I'll, I'll save my best bit for the last, and I'll try to soak it, and I'll get my 30. Mm-hmm. And that gets you, it's always better for just, I, I don't have 30, I've got 50. <laughs> yeah. You know? Um, and so maybe early in my career, because I was stretching myself a lot when I first started. I was at this comedy club called Zany's in Chicago, and there were, this was in the beginning of the comedy boom, and you had all kinds of weird stuff happening. Acts would show up late, get in an accident, wouldn't show up at all. They'd be back in the room, stretch, and I've already gone through all my time. And, now, <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm trying to think, I don't remember a specific moment when somebody was shouting at me and telling me how awful I was. I do remember there being uncomfortable moments as in nobody laughing at my punchlines. Mm-hmm. But that just, that's personal, that just means I didn't work hard enough. That means I didn't put And I'm sure together. that happens to every comedian at some point in their career. You know, it's, it, I think it's, so. it has to happen. I, I mean, even the big guys like Eddie Murphy, I'm sure, have had jokes that just don't hit. Right. You know, so I, that's... The that's, most depressing thing about that is you spend so much time of your life working on these punchlines. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is going to be the one. This is, I can hardly wait to do it. And then nothing. Yeah. Well, I, I, it's, the, it's the delivery. Mm-hmm. I, and so you try it again. It's the wording. I, I need to <laughs> phrase it a little better. And, and I usually give it three. If it, if, if it bombs three nights or three times live, it's probably not going to come back on the yeah. sixth time. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I, wait, I just wasted two hours or three hours of my life. Yeah. Do you still get nervous? On stage, the, what I get nervous about is writing the new jokes. Is, okay, are the new uh, is the new stuff going to work? Mm-hmm. I get I get nervous about that, and there's so many things that go into that. The new stuff, because there's with people my age, there's a thing. The common catchphrase is dad joke. So now is this a dad joke, uh-huh. or is it funny, right? So, um, and I'm always nervous that. It's not going to work, especially you spend so much time on these jokes and on these routines. Or with the ventriloquist puppet, I'm working on a rap now with the puppet where he's going to put in like different, uh, take bits from different rap tracks and put them all into one. You know, is that going to work or is it just going to seem like a pretentious, overlong, yeah. where, where is this going endless stream of stuff that I've ripped off from real rappers. You know, so I'm worried, so I'm nervous about that. Okay. But if it works, it's it's great. If it doesn't work, then I'm, it's, I've already probably spent three hours on this and I haven't got it on the stage yet. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Well, you're nervous that the time you put into it's not gonna be wasted. Right. Yeah, so I can understand that, totally. And it's, it's very frustrating. Yeah. You know, you mentioned, you know, performing at Zany's, you know, which is a very well-known comedy club in Chicago, and number of other, I remember seeing you, oh, I can't remember the name of the club now, it doesn't exist anymore, but it was in Cherry Hill. Oh, yeah, a comedy cabaret in Cherry Hill. Comedy, was it, or was it Rascals at the time? Oh, it was Rascals, Rascals, you're right. Yeah, because I remember seeing you at Rascals, which doesn't, it's at the comedy club They had a club up in North Jersey that I'd worked at for many years, they went out of business, and then another guy bought the name and tried to open a Rascals in South Jersey. Yeah. And it went out of business. Too. Yeah. But yeah. I got to work it a couple of times. So, I mean, you know, all the comedy clubs that you've worked at, who's, who has surprised you the most as maybe like a, the biggest person you've ever met, comedian-wise? Like maybe they were just at the club performing a set right. or, you know, they just happened to be hanging out at the club, checking out other comedians. Who have you run into that kind of... Just blew me away. Yeah. Uh, I worked, well, there's a couple of guys. There's a, a young guy named Ryan Hamilton that I worked with. Uh, he's very, very funny. He just did the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival. Okay. Which is pretty, and Ryan's great. Um, I can't remember this other guy's name now. He's from Nashville, Tennessee, went to Vanderbilt. 
Ah, oh, I can't believe <laughs> I forgot his name, but he was very, he was also very, just a very slick, really just had great material, really tight. I did a show called Pure Flix Comedy All-Stars a couple of years ago. It's avail it's out there right now. And the host of the show was Sinbad. Okay. And the women on that show, and I don't, I'm just so bad to remember everybody's name, but the women, it seems like there's so many really good people right now in 19... 20, 21, 22 years old, so that are just getting their feet wet in comedy, mm -hmm. who are really good. So this is 2019, and I've probably seen 15 or 20, and that's hardly any, but I, I, that I've worked with over the last couple of years, who have really tight sets, are really just solid, mm -hmm. they have great stage presence, and they've all just impressed me. I, here's what I'm not. I'm not one of the guys in the back at the comedy club Old guys, oh, these young people, they, uh, they've never paid any dues. They don't, they're not funny. I'm more like, oh, my gosh, these guys are so good. If you're funny, you're funny. I mean, that's, that's it's, you know. And I would say, I think that, honestly, I think that the people that are starting out now that are working in comedy clubs and, and working and headlining and, and, or just doing sets in, the, in New York and L.A., I think they're very, very good. I think they're a little bit better than the ones at the beginning of the comedy wave of the 80s mm -hmm. just because they've got m such a broad base of reference to work with whereas in the 80s it was it was a difference between 7-Eleven and AMP and Minimart <laughs> difference between cats and dogs yeah. uh, you know there was a lot of not so much uh, copying but there was a lot of generic stuff going on mm -hmm. and now it's people are very eclectic and they do their own thing. It's pretty impressive, actually. And I think the, the people, tell me, it's not that they're so much better, it's that they've, they've, they can take advantage of the fact that the comedy business, which is what it is, has exploded to such a point, and you have to be really good now. It's very similar, I think, to music. Mm -hmm. In the beginning of rock and roll, it was all those, there were like three chord and four chord rock songs, pop songs, so, it was easy to learn the chords because everybody was using the same. Yeah. Jerry Lee Lewis was very similar to Carl Perkins, was very similar to Buddy Holly, was very similar to, you know. <laughs> There's actually a comedian out there, and I can't think of who it is. Uh, I think they're a duo that actually do a bit called the three chord song. And it's just. An endless. <laughs> it's, it's the same chord progression, but they just keep changing it to songs. different. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's the same chord progression. Through and all I think comedy is kind of the same thing in the 80s. People had the ba that same like bass. Mm -hmm. And now, similar to where music is now, I mean, what is it? There's electronic music, there's dance music, there's house music, there's electro house, there's techno <laughs> yeah. house, there's rock, there's alternative, you know, and, and it's just broader. Yeah. It's just a much broader, and, and there's a lot of talented musicians now. Music runs like water, and frankly, comedy does as well. Mm. And so the young people that, I, that I've seen, they're, to me, they're all really good, and, and I'm always impressed. There are some, we, it's hard when you start out. And a lot of times when I work in the clubs where you see me, the guy is giving the people before me stage time, mm -hmm. 10 or 12, 15 minutes. And they're beginning and they're struggling. Yeah. But sometimes you work with people and they're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how good this guy is. Yeah, like why are you not headlining somewhere already? A lot point? of times I say, next time you see me with this person, I'm going to be opening for them. Because uh -huh. they're great. Yeah. I know, you know, we've talked about the ventriloquism, but one of the things we haven't really talked about is your ventriloquism family. We haven't talked about the puppets right. at all. Uh, you know, I remember, you know, seeing you when you first started, or not when you first started, when I first started seeing right. you. Uh, you know, Romeo was, you had Romeo, you had Juliet, you had Paco, Paquito, and Sumo, I think, were your main puppets that, was it, that you yes. had. Not and your right. family has expanded a lot since then. There are puppets I think you have now that I've seen on your website I haven't even seen yet in an oh, act. Oh, wow. So, you know, I always come to see you because I look forward to seeing, uh, you know, different uh, puppets. But where do you find the inspiration for the puppets? Because you create all of your puppets. Right. Not? Yeah. Right. So, um, all right, let's say I create the idea. And I'll just give you one example mm -hmm. to, because uh, I've got so many. Mm -hmm. But the pigs, my uncle Art raised hogs. So the, that is why there are pigs in my act. Mm -hmm. Because I knew pigs, and there are, two, there are two personalities for a pig. They are very cute to look at, but they can be 
they can be acerbic. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was giving shots to sows on the farm, for example, the sow, I, I did everything I could think of to hide these needles. You know, you're going to go in because she's, she's either about to give birth or she, and you want to make sure she's disease free, right? Uh -huh. And you want to make sure she's getting her vitamins and all that stuff because it's hot and she, she's just, she's filled with these piglets and they haven't come out yet and she's in the back of the barn and she's going to lay there, wallow there. Well, she's got to have her vitamins. So, <laughs> so she knows that I'm coming in the barn. She uh -huh. knows that I've got so, and they bite. You know, they they'll, they have they're all molars and they'll they they're nasty. They'll, uh -huh. But then again, the piglets come out. And they're adorable, which are the 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 piglets. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and this is how I work. So I have a penguin. You've probably never seen the. Penguin. I've never seen the penguin. No. So that's this is a good place for me. And this looks instead of oh, there's a great penguin puppet. I'm going to use it in my act. Mm. I do it's the reverse. I want I want something in my act that is going to overcome I work for Disney a lot and I've met a lot of people with Make a Wish Foundation. Mm -hmm. So they're overcoming a lot of physical issues, a lot of those children. Some of them will never overcome those mm -hmm. physical issues. So how what can I do? What what creature is there out there? Man, woman, child, gender non-specific, whatever. What person, what thing could represent a broad base of someone? Well, a penguin is a bird, but can't fly and can barely walk, unlike the penguin's brethren and mm -hmm. all the other. Okay, great. So the penguin, for me, already now represents what I want, which is a bird who has to overcome the fact that it can't fly. How can we help the bird fly? Well, we're going to get a person out of the audience. The whole premise of the penguin is bring a person out of the audience. They're going to put their arms underneath the wings of the penguin. And now their hands mm -hmm. are the penguins. So I have the kids flap their, their hands. Their, their hands are through the penguin's wings. Mm -hmm. So it looks like the penguin has two hands instead of wings. Okay. <laughs> so, and now f flap your hands and the penguin flies. Oh my gosh, I'm a penguin. And he's got a... Uh, I'm not a bird. Yes, you are. No, I'm not. I'm not a bird. Why aren't you a bird? I, I've got wings, but they don't work. I've got feet, but they don't work. I can't fly. Okay, I'm an angry bird. And then the joke, there's a pigs on the floor. So it's just, <laughs> the know, angry bird exactly. joke. Exactly. Okay, so yep. there's an angry bird joke. Yep. So it, and, but that was not, that just came after the concept of having a creature, a living creature who has something about them physically mm. that is holding them back. But now I'm going to bring this person out of the audience and they're gonna help the penguin. It's just the fact, but the pigs happen to be there, so now, that, well, I might as well use the, a joke yeah. from Angry Birds. That was not the, the impetus, but I'm building on the fact that I'm going to use a penguin as a way to show how we can work together, how we can help one another. Mm -hmm. And the jokes will come, will flow, a la the pigs and the mm -hmm. Angry Birds joke. So the, the person has their hands through the wings of the penguin, they flap their hands, the penguin can fly, and then we, there's all kinds of stuff. The penguin has to wash their hands. They've never washed their hands before. <laughs> you know, all right. all right, so they're improvising, eating a banana, and then to close, look, you've got feet also now. So, you know, instead of just the two little waddle feet, the, the human being's feet are right below them, uh -huh. so they have to do the hokey pokey. Oh, that's great. Right? So, and that is, but all that comes from, it wasn't that, I'm, I, Here's a penguin puppet, now I'm gonna figure out what to do with it. Mm -hmm. It was, what creature has, do, I, can I work with who has to overcome? And I don't wanna work with um, uh, a specific, you know, somebody who's missing a leg, somebody who has cancer, somebody who's overcoming a, a gender thing they're going yeah. through in their life. I need something more broad than that. Mm -hmm. A penguin, oh, it's a bird, but he can't fly. Per kismet, yeah. that's what I'm gonna use. And that is how, and then if, once I made that decision, I'm going to do the penguin. It wasn't like, mm, I don't know if the penguin's going to work. No, no, no. I'm going to get the penguin because the penguin can't fly and I'm going to make the routine work Yeah. and I'll build the jokes and that is how I work. Okay. And it takes probably one to three years to perfect it and then once that's perfected, then now it's, now you work, so now that's probably five years old, that routine. Mm -hmm. And now it's perfected, and now it's on whatever I'm going to do next. Do you do you have people? Do you design the puppets and have people build them for you now, or yes. do you still build everything yourself? No, no, no. I haven't built anything for a long, long. I time. think is Romeo still 
Romeo was the original Romeo. Was I know that because it's part of your act about how I'm being concept, part of the right? But now that's oh, yeah. built a woman named Marianne Taylor and her daughter Melissa build those for me. Okay, and she's brilliant. She's amazing, and all, everything is built for me. Yeah. I don't. I just don't have the time or the technical skill. Yeah, that really takes. The only thing I'm good at, everywhere I go, I, I have a sewing kit. To, re, to repair the puppets, which mm -hmm. one of the reasons I stopped working with the wooden or the composite head puppet, one of the reasons is when they break. Especially if you're on the road. You're doomed. Yeah, exactly. You're Whereas without. The, with the soft puppets, and if I have to, I can build a soft puppet mouth. I've done it many times. Just mm -hmm. sew it together or in a sock puppet and I can get through a show. Yeah. A Romeo fits on the plane in an over like in an overhead bag. Oh, that's part of your act too. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I can I've always got yeah. them with me because I've been burned so many times. Okay. Yeah, I know that that's like my geek out this is my geek out moment, by the way, with Taylor. Like I know yeah, after seeing you for as many times as I have, Romeo is still one of my favorites. Like yeah. the way he engages with the crowd is just hysterical. Especially when you're talking to the people in the front row about careers and things like that. I don't want to give it away because I want people to come out and see you. Um, Paco is still a favorite. Paquito, because he's literally just a, a glove, pretty much. Basically. And w an old favorite of mine who I, I don't think I've seen you use in a while is Sumo. Sumo, he dropped out of the act. Yeah. Because we're in such a politically correct culture. Understandably, yeah. And it we hadn't, and it's too bad because it, uh, he was a life-sized Sumo wrestler puppet and the way that his body became life-size is a giant beach ball. Mm -hmm. the, Marianne Taylor built this to my specs. I, I showed her what I wanted and she gave me and I said, but how are we going to make the body fat? She said, with a giant beach ball that fits in the back of the puppet, blow it up and his body would expand and he was bigger. He looked like a 300 pound mm -hmm. man, like a sumo wrestler. Yeah. And he, I would I'd get a woman out of the audience, politically incorrect, I know. And she would sit on a stool, the puppet would sit on her lap, and she would put her hand in his head, and she would operate the sumo wrestler's head while I fit words in the sumo wrestler's yeah. mouth. But it's very politically incorrect. He's wearing the mawashi, the thing that the sumo wrestlers wear, uh -huh. that's all he's wearing, sitting on a woman's lap. It is funny, but let's face it. Uh, no, you're, you're right. In, in, in the PC world that we live in now, it, it might not be you're cutting, completely... You are really on the edge yeah. of you're making, you're, you're making fun of sumo wrestling, and that could be making fun of... Here's a great example on that. This story is not in the book. Okay. Um, Paco, my pig, hablo espanol. Paco Picarico Chico, entiendo Federico. He's fluent in Spanish. <laughs> so we're at the Pepsi Arena, 20,000-seater in Denver. Do the show with Paco, everybody's happy, and end of the show, and the, I'm, the, the music's still going on, and I'm in the, the dressing room waiting to you know, go to the next gig. And the manager of the Pepsi Arena comes down. You have to come to my office right now. I go to his office. This is such a great story. There's a woman there with her husband, and one of the older gospel singers is hanging around I think he's waiting because he's got a table where he sells his CDs mm -hmm. and he's just standing there and he sees me, what are you doing? I've, I've been called into the manager's office. So he follows me in. So now manager in the manager's office is here, this woman and her husband, the gospel singer and me. And the man says, this woman has something to say to you. And she says to me, I knew what you were doing with the pig. You were making fun of all Mexican people. You were saying all Mexican people are pigs. And I, no, no, I'm not. No, you, he spoke Spanish. I know what you were saying. We are not pigs. No, I would never, I would never infer that. And she's livid. Uh -huh. She is telling me that I have insulted her. She wants her money back, the whole thing. The gospel singer, older guy, comes over and says, look, lady, you've got it all wrong. The pig is actually Chinese. He's only playing the part of a Spanish-speaking pig. Her husband does exactly what you're doing now and walks out. And the woman, you can see the steam coming out of her ears, and she just turns on her heel and walks out. And the manager places, thank you so much. Is that great? That's and This fantastic. is just some guy. Some old, his name was Ben Spear, and he went over to her. Look, you've got this all wrong. I'll never forget it. That's brilliant. The pig is actually Chinese. He's only playing the role of a, so he's really not making fun yeah. of it. Oh, it's great. That's brilliant. He saved my life. That's, ben that's, that's fantastic. 
Yeah, I know. I mean, I know we've talked about going for like an hour, and I know we, we, we we're already at an hour now, and I have like so many other things I'd like to talk to you about. Um, so I'll, I'll just try and pick and choose to kind yeah, of get through them. Yeah, we're gonna have to cut short. I'm sorry. Um, because I, I, I wanted to talk to you about Taylor's Attic, which was something you had done a while right. ago. Uh, any plans to do anything like that again? Sometime? I would love to. You know, Taylor's Attic was a children's TV show, two seasons. The second season won a regional Emmy in Ohio, Indiana, Kentucky. Uh, it, the set for it was amazing. Probably, there, Romeo was part of that show. Mm -hmm. um, a, a version of Paco was on that show, and there were probably ten puppets. There was uh, a guy named Dr. Dish who was a Jimmy Durante sound alike, and he was like the uh, smartest guy. Um, uh, but, you know, the company that ran it, the NBC affiliate in Columbus, Ohio, had gone bankrupt and was bought by a, um, this company, and they sponsored that show, Taylor's Attic. Mm -hmm. I wish it was still going. I've always felt bad about it because there were, there were camera people, directors, there were a couple of secretaries, all these people who were involved with the show, and only ran two years, and then when the show's over, all the actors, you know, the people who are doing the parts of the puppets, they're, they're back to washing windows and doing whatever day jobs they had to do yeah. before, and I just go off, and I'm, I can still work. Yeah. You know, when you're in comedy, you, there's comedy clubs, there's theaters, there's casinos, da 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 So I always felt bad that the show went under. Uh, I don't think it went under because of audience. It did win an Emmy, but it was just, it's expensive. Um, the head writer was great, Paul Seaburn was the head writer. It's a lot of fun. We wrote original songs mm -hmm. for all the episodes. It was a blast to do. You can still, I think you can still get the, uh, I think you can still buy the, the DVD of season two. Oh, that's cool. I might have to look for it then yeah. to check it out. Uh, any chance maybe doing something viral with it? Like doing something new, you know, doing I've, it on YouTube? Yeah, or? that's a good idea. Um, I, I, I know that the, the company that the production company sold the rights of that production company and the show to Sony. And so the puppets are owned. Those particular puppets are owned by Sony right now. How do you I, get around that with the Romeo? Romeo puppet? is not. Okay. I, di I didn't let them have Romeo. Okay. Um, I think after the first season, what I did, I signed my contract. They had to have, it was part of the Screen Actors Guild thing. I don't know what all the, the yeah. details are, but they got the ownership of like seven or eight of the puppets. There was one of the puppets named Dusty. Dusty was, it's on the floor of an attic, and he was the dust on the attic that had, <laughs> like, come together and formed into this, this thing. Yeah. That, he talked like this, and he was kind of a whiner. <laughs> and his, uh, his motto was, there's a lot of things about me you don't know. <laughs> I want to see the show now just because of that. Oh, he was great. He was, and he had evolved. He was supposed to be a tough guy, but by the end of the show... He's a whiner. <laughs> you know, he's just become this whining dust ball. Yeah. And he was very cute. Um, Marianne Taylor, again, made most of the puppets for this show. And I, I think out of the maybe the 10 puppets, she made eight of them for the show. And he was one of them. And uh, Sumo was on it. I still have the rights to Sumo. Sumo was um, kind of, uh, he was a, um, the, the guy who leveled out all the, all the mm. angst that was going on. Juliet was, yeah. they, they voted her president of the attic. We had an, a political campaign when you, <laughs> there was a giant roach named Rocco. Rocco the roach, a giant roach. It was a great, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it'd be cool if you could find a way to bring that back somehow. I'm gonna try and base oh. on this, yeah. Yeah, go viral with it. Just throw it on YouTube, because people watch everything on YouTube. Oh nowadays. yeah, it's unbelievable. So. If not for YouTube, I wouldn't have a career, I don't think. <laughs> um, I know we gotta wrap it up. Yeah. So uh, I just wanna tell people different places they can check you out. Your website, taylormason.com, uh, facebook.com slash taylormasoncomedy, uh, at uh, masonites on Twitter, yes. which you've used that name for a long Masonite. Next song I, I use will be done by Taylor and the Masonites. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and Taylor Mason Comedy on Instagram. Yes. Is where people can find you. Uh, you did a, a special that's online right now for Dry, Dry Bar, Bar Comedy. Oh, thank you. Yep. Dry Bar Comedy. Uh, you can download it, stream it for free. I think they ask you and for tip, a buck. Yeah. And tip afterwards. Yeah. You can tip, tip a dollar or two. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, like it. If nothing else, don't even watch the whole show. Just like my <laughs> episode. Just download the Dry Bar Comedy app. Mine is called Com uh, Hysterical Perspective. Taylor Mason, Hysterical Perspective. It's a, like a 40-minute comedy special, music comedy, ventriloquism. And uh, yeah, give us a like. Yeah, 
Yeah, and watch the whole thing. Don't just watch it and <laughs> like it. Actually, actually watch a special because I again I didn't want to give away anything that happens during your act because I want people to it's to fun. see you. And that's a good way to do it if you're not anywhere close to see you. They can watch the Dry Bar special online. Uh, I still remember getting buying one of your specials on VHS that was in like this green oh my clamshell. Gosh. Oh so my I gosh! Still remember, still remember that. Ben, I, I have a Paco puppet at home somewhere too. You know, hold on to that because they don't make them anymore. Really? Those are not. Yes, those I are still, out of I production. Still have mine. I still oh, have mine. Oh, I'll bet you can get forty bucks of that on eBay. I'm keeping that. I'm not getting. <laughs> I'm not selling that on eBay. Uh, but Taylor, thank you so much. I for love doing you, this for I love you. I'm finally so glad we finally did me. this. Yeah, we well, might have to do a part two because anytime. there's stuff that we didn't even get. Go, I just got go so much yet. going on. Yeah, and I'm getting ready to roll. So, so, but check out taylormason.com for all your tour dates for places. This to go is the see. man right here. So, no, this is the man. Ben right Beck here. is it, and so. I love your Facebook, the photo I, 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 that you're using with the beard. Who uh, is well, that? Well, that's Robin Williams. Oh, is that Rob, yeah, Robin? That's Robin. So, Williams. in honor, how cool! Yeah, I did. I meet, do that every year. I did meet Robin Williams. Oh, I'm jealous. In the late '80s, my brother had an apartment by Zany's Comedy Club in Chicago, and uh, Robin Williams came and dropped in, and, and did a set. And then after the show, my brother, my brother Tony was in the back talking to Robin Williams. And Robin Williams says, I don't know what to do tonight. My brother said, well, come over to my place. So he came over, Robin came over. There were like four, five people. And I was living with my brother, Maureen Kelly, an actress from the Second City, and then a couple of actors, and Robin Williams. And we just hung out for them. I had pizza and hung out for them. Oh, God, That's so a true story. I'm so jealous. I can't think of a better way to wrap this up. Taylor, thanks again for doing this. I love you. So, thanks, Ben. Bye, guys. 